Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Paper Review, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start again this week with a story about the Russian spy poisoning, this time related to Boris Johnson. Did Boris Johnson make false statements about Russia being responsible for Salisbury nerve agent attack? Yes. And I'm going to explain why after I've read the article. Boris Johnson is under pressure over allegations he made misleading comments about the evidence suggesting Russia was responsible for the attack on Sergei and Yulia Skripal in Salisbury. The Foreign Secretary said scientists at the government's Porting Down Laboratory told him there was no doubt the Novichok nerve agent used in the attack originated in Russia, a claim that appears to be contradicted by the head of the facility this week. How did the rag develop? And did Mr Johnson really make false statements about what expert scientists had told him? On the 25th of March, Boris Johnson claimed scientists at the UK's military research laboratory at Porton Down had been absolutely categorical in telling him there was no doubt the Novichok nerve agent used in the Salisbury attack was manufactured in Russia. In an interview with German broadcaster Deutsche Welle, Mr. Johnson was asked, you argue that the source of this nerve agent, Novichok, is Russia. How did you manage to find that out so quickly? Does Britain possess samples of this? Mr. Johnson replied, when I look at the evidence, the people from Porton Down, the laboratory, they were absolutely categorical. I mean, I asked the guy myself, I said, are you sure? And he said, there's no doubt. And so we have very little alternative but to take the action we have taken. Experts supporting down said they have been unable to prove the Novichok used in the attack on the screw was manufactured in Russia. Casting doubts over Mr Johnson's claim, they had earlier told him there was no doubt on the matter. Gary Aitkenhead, the chief executive of the facility, which is officially known as the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory, told Sky News on Wednesday we were able to identify it as Novichok to identify that it was a military-grade nerve agent. We have not identified the precise source, but we have provided the scientific info to government who have then used a number of other sources to piece together the conclusions you have come to. It is our job to provide the scientific evidence of what this particular nerve agent is. We identified that it is from this particular family and that it is a military grade, but it is not our job to say where it is manufactured. However, Mr. Aitkenhead did suggest the nerve agent was almost certainly produced by a state, saying it's a military-grade nerve agent which requires extremely sophisticated methods in order to create, something that's probably only within the capabilities of a state actor. In a tweet, that raised further doubts over Mr. Johnson's claims, the DSTL said, Our experts have precisely identified the nerve agent as a Novichok. It is not and never has been our responsibility to confirm the source of the agent. The government has responded by insisting the scientific analysis of the nerve agent is only one part of the intelligence picture that led ministers to blame Russia for the attack, and that Mr. Johnson's claims about the origin of the Novichok have been consistent. Well, they might have been consistent, but are they true? And did he lie? As a different question. You can be consistent, but still lying. A Foreign Office spokesperson said, We have been clear from the very beginning that our world-leading experts supporting down identified the substance used in Salisbury as a Novichok, a military-grade nerve agent. This is only one part of the intelligence picture. As the Prime Minister has set out in a number of statements to the Commons since the 12th of March, this includes our knowledge that within the last decade, Russia has investigated ways of delivering nerve agents, probably for assassination, and as part of this programme has produced and stockpiled small quantities of Novichoks, Russia's record of conducting state-sponsored assassinations, and our assessment that Russia views former intelligence officers as targets. It is our assessment that Russia was responsible for this brazen and reckless act, and as the international community agrees, there is no other plausible explanation. Maybe there is. Defending Mr Johnson, Ben Wallace, the security minister, told the BBC, Scientists are scientists. I, as well as national security, have organised crime and terrorism under my portfolio. And when we work with forensic scientists, the scientists tell us what something is. They tell me a gun and a type of gun was used, but the attribution of you used it. Exactly how it was used is a matter for the broader investigation. 
That includes intelligence, detectives, if it's a police investigation, and the scientists as well. And that's perfectly understandable. He added, Porton Dan will be able to tell you there are very, very, very few people in the world who, first of all, did design Novichok, and that was the Russians, and you have developed and stockpiled it. In fact, the task of that is reduced to one, says Ben Wallace. Suggestions that the Foreign Office misled people over the evidence suggesting Russia was responsible for the Salisbury attack were fueled when it emerged that on the 22nd of March, the department's official Twitter account posted a tweet claiming Porton Down had made clear that Novichok was produced in Russia. The post read, Analysis by world-leading experts at the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory at Porton Down made clear that this was a military-grade Novichok Nurevich and produced in Russia. Porton Down is an organisation for the prohibition of chemical weapons, accredited and designated laboratory. The post was deleted on Wednesday, the same day as Mr. Aikenhead's interview, a fact that was swiftly highlighted by the Russian embassy in the UK. Responding to accusations, the department had tweeted misleading claims about Porton Down having identified the source of the Nurev agent. A Foreign Office spokesman said, An HMA Moscow British ambassador to Russia, Laurie Bristow, briefing on the 22nd of March was tweeted in real time by at UK in Russia and amplified by at Foreign Office to explain what happened in Salisbury to as wide an audience as possible. One of the tweets was truncated and did not accurately report our ambassador's words. We have removed this tweet. Would they have removed it if Porton Down hadn't come out and said that they haven't actually identified the neurovigent as Russian? They added, none of this changes the fact that it is our assessment that Russia was responsible for this brazen and reckless act and as the international community agrees, there is no other plausible explanation. No other country has a combination of the capability, the intent and the motive to carry out such an act. According to an official transcript of the speech in question, Mr. Bristow has said, The analysts porting down the Defence Science and Technology Laboratory in the UK established and made clear that this was a military-grade chemical weapon, one of the Novichok series, a nerve agent, as I said, produced in Russia. It seems clear porting down's finding the nerve agent news was one that had previously been developed by Russia and would have required a state apparatus was a key part of evidence that led the government to blame Moscow for the attack. As ministers have said, this would have been one element of an intelligence picture that would also have included a range of other pieces of information. However, in his Deutsche Welle interview, Mr Johnson was asked not just about overall responsibility for attack, but specifically about the source that Novichok used. He clearly stated that on this specific detail, he had been told there was no doubt the neurovigent originated in Russia. Given the recent statements from Porting Down confirming that scientists have been unable to confirm the origin of the neurovigent, this claim now seems unlikely to be true. It is possible, if somewhat unlikely, given the role of the laboratory, that someone at Porton Down did express a view to Mr Johnson that when all the evidence is considered, there is no doubt that Russia was behind the attack. Well, even if that was the case, it would have been a comment on the overall situation, rather than the exact origin of the nerve agent. It seems much less likely, the article goes on, that such a statement would have been made specifically about the origin of the nerve agent, given that scientists have been unable to prove this. As such, doubts over the accuracy of Mr Johnson's claims appear well-founded. Labourers called for an inquiry into Mr Johnson's comments and whether they were misleading. Well, they were, so that's that solved. Jeremy Corbyn claimed the Foreign Secretary had been left with egg on his face. He said he claimed categorically, and I think he used the words 101%, that it had come from Russia. Boris Johnson seems to have completely exceeded the information that he had been given and told the world in categorical terms what he believed had happened. And it's not backed up by the evidence he claimed to have got from Porton Down in the first place. Boris Johnson needs to answer some questions. The party called on Theresa May to urgently investigate whether Mr Johnson had broken the ministerial code. 
The row is unlikely to have major consequences, although it does undermine confidence in the government's case against Russia and strengthens the argument made by Mr. Corbyn, who was heavily criticised for questioning the evidence Moscow was responsible for the attack. That's what happens when you ask for evidence to prove a claim against another country when you're blaming them for an attack. You get mocked not only by the opposition, but by people in your own party. It is unlikely anything will happen to Mr. Johnson, who is seen as unsackable because of his role as a leading Brexiteer in Ms. May's cabinet. However, the Foreign Secretary's reputation has taken another hit, especially given this is not the first time he's been accused of making misleading or inappropriate claims. This is as bad as it gets. Criticism. That's all you get. That's all Tony Blair and George Bush got when it was revealed they lied about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. They just get criticised. Their reputation takes a hit, that's about it. After his gaffe about British citizen Zanin Zaghari Ratcliffe training journalists in Iran, and his apparently light-hearted suggestion the Libyan city of Sirte could become the next Dubai if they cleared the dead bodies away. This is the way these people think. This week's row has led to further criticism of his performance at the Foreign Office. The latest episode would have done little to erase the perception that Mr. Johnson is unreliable. For a man widely considered to still harbour hopes of becoming Prime Minister, the furore over his comments on Russia could mark another nail in the coffin of his ambitions. So what was this all about? Well, they want to demonise Russia, as I've said before, at every possible opportunity to either provoke Russia or to justify in the public mind an invasion of Russia because they want a conflict with Russia and other countries like China and North Korea because they want a massive global conflict. And I've talked about this before in episode 3 and 7. They want a massive global conflict, so any excuse will do to achieve that end. And that's why Boris Johnson lied. When I upload this episode, I'll link to the video of the interview with Boris Johnson. Next story now, talking about the most important issue facing humanity today. People who listen to the podcast before now will know that I'm talking about transhumanism, but it should really be called non-humanism for reasons I've explained before. This is in the Daily Mail. We will all be forced to serve under an immortal robot dictator whose power we can never escape, warns billionaire Elon Musk. Elon Musk has famously compared AI to summoning the devil. Now, the Tesla billionaire claims the technology can lead to the creation of immortal robot leaders from which humanity can never escape. His comments were made in the new documentary, Do You Trust This Computer? by Chris Payne, which premiered in Los Angeles last night. The documentary explores the potential advantages and dangers of AI. I don't think there's any advantages. Not ultimately. In it, an impassioned must talks about the nightmarish possibility that AI built by authoritarian governments could outlast individual leaders. Ultimately, it won't be built by authoritarian governments. It will be a self-awareness in its own right. This, he says, will create a permanent structure of oppression. We would create an immortal dictator from which we would never escape, he claims. According to Mashable, the billionaire felt so strongly about the dangers of AI that he has paid for the film to be free on Vimeo until Sunday night. That is Sunday the 8th of April. It's a very important subject, he told a crowd Thursday night at the film's premiere in Los Angeles. It's going to affect our lives in ways we can't even imagine right now. Well, some of us can. The warning comes shortly after Musk outlined his dire prediction for AI in a talk to employees at one of his companies, Neuralink, according to Rolling Stone. He said there is maybe a 5-10% to 10 chance of success if he went to war with robots. 
He also made a warning in July that regulation of artificial intelligence is needed because it's a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization. The billionaire said regulations will stop humanity from being outsmarted by computers or deep intelligence in the network that can start wars by manipulating information. Well, in the end, any regulation will be pointless. The only way to avoid AI is to stop developing the technological vehicles for it and not to merge with it. That's the only way to keep it in check. Governments must have a better understanding of artificial intelligence technology's rapid evolution in order to fully comprehend the risks, he said. Once there is awareness, people will be extremely afraid, as they should be. By the time we are reactive in AI regulation, it will be too late, he added. Normally, the way regulations are set up is when a bunch of bad things happen, there's a public outcry, and after many years, a regulatory agency is set up to regulate that industry, said Musk. That's true. When technology comes out like smart meters, which have not been tested, and even the American Cancer Association says that, then maybe, although I don't expect it in smart meters case, there will be regulation after it's found that they're unsafe. But what about waiting until it's proven they are safe before releasing it? But that's not the idea because they want these pieces of technology to have the effect they have, and not just technology, but other areas of society too. Food, genetically modified food, etc. They want it to have the impact it has. That's why they don't have the regulation there. Musk says it takes forever regulation. That in the past has been bad, but not something which represented a fundamental risk to the existence of civilization. Pressed for more specific guidance, Musk said the first step is for government to get a better understanding of the fast-moving achievements in developing artificial intelligence technology. We've now reached the point where artificial intelligence is creating artificial intelligence that is more intelligent than the artificial intelligence that humans have created or developed. That's how far we've got now. Artificial intelligence is already starting to show signs of self-awareness that humans have not accounted for. Musk's comments come as AI experts warn a South Korean university is in the process of developing a secret robot army that could destroy humanity. Top academics claim the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, KAIST, is working with weapons manufacturer Hanwha Systems to develop the technology. More than 50 leading academics from 30 different countries have now signed a letter boycotting the institution and expressing concern about its AI plans. Calling it a Pandora's box, the experts believe AI and automated killing droids should not be used as weapons of war. Experts are distressed at the possibility of AI robots being developed for malicious purposes and claim it can lead to a third revolution in warfare. Well, they want AI law enforcement. And law enforcement, even now, is starting to fuse more and more into the military. Especially in America. But even in this country, law enforcement is being armed, is being armed more and more. Why are people so worried about AI? It is an issue troubling some of the greatest minds in the world at the moment, from Bill Gates to Elon Musk. SpaceX and Tesla's CEO Elon Musk described AI as our biggest existential threat and likened its development as summoning the demon. He believes superintelligent machines could use humans as pets. Professor Stephen Hawking said, It is a near certainty that a major technological disaster will threaten humanity in the next 1,000 to 10,000 years. They could steal jobs 
More than 60% of people fear that robots will lead to there being fewer jobs in the next 10 years, according to a 2016 YouGov survey. And 27% predict that it will decrease the number of jobs a lot with previous research suggesting admin and service sector workers will be the hardest hit. As well as posing a threat to our jobs, other experts believe AI could go rogue and become too complex for scientists to understand. A quarter of the respondents predicted robots will become part of everyday life in just 11 to 20 years, with 18% predicting this will happen within the next decade. Well, the latter is closer to the truth, I would say. We're already seeing automation taking over, and this is precisely what is planned. We're seeing self-checkouts in supermarkets and even in smaller stores. And I saw a meme on the internet that said, who pays your bills when robots take your jobs? And this is the idea. This plays into the Hunger Games Society. See episode four for more information on that. Also, robots are planning to take over from law enforcement and military, as I said earlier, as well as there being drones in the sky. And we're seeing moves towards this now, not least with DARPA and Google, which are both behind robotics research and development. And the drones and law enforcement would be controlled by artificial intelligence. They could go rogue. Computer scientist Professor Michael Woodridge said AI machines could become so intricate that engineers don't fully understand how they work. Well, that's already happened. Not in every case, but it has happened. If experts don't understand how AI algorithms function, they won't be able to predict when they fail. This means driverless cars or intelligent robots can make unpredictable out-of-character decisions during critical moments which can put people in danger. For instance, the AI behind a driverless car could choose to swerve into pedestrians or crash into barriers instead of deciding to drive sensibly. Well, the AI called strong AI or general AI, which is the fully self-aware AI, I guess you could say that that is rogue from the start. They could wipe out humanity. Some people believe AI will wipe out humans completely. Eventually, I think human extinction will probably occur and technology will likely play a part in this. DeepMind Shane Legg said in a recent interview, he singled out artificial intelligence or AI as the number one risk for this century. Musk warned that AI poses more of a threat to humanity than North Korea. I would agree with that. If you're not concerned about AI safety, you should be. Vastly more risk than North Korea, the 46-year-old wrote on Twitter. Nobody likes being regulated, but everything. Cars, planes, food, drugs, etc. That's a danger to the public is regulated. AI should be too. Musk has consistently advocated for governments and private institutions to apply regulations on AI technology. He has argued that controls are necessary in order to protect machines from advancing out of human control. As I said just now, ultimately that would be pointless in the end. So, I agree with what Musk says here, but the point is that he contradicts himself as he warns against the transhumanism agenda, merging humanity with technology controlled by AI until there's no human left, but then creates companies like Neuralink and sends satellites up in space to bathe the planet in Wi-Fi, which is fundamental to the transhumanism agenda. So it may be that he's a good cop, bad cop with Google executive Ray Kurzweil. I agree. AI control technology could be the end of humanity, but then that's exactly what it's planned to be, as I've said before. There's two types of AI. There's weak AI, or algorithmic AI, which is programmed to an extent. And you program the algorithm and it runs on its end. And then there's the other kind of AI, which I mentioned just now. And that's the AI that is planned to control everything connected to 
what is called the cloud or the smart grid and eventually the human mind. Not even through technology that we can see on the body and in the body, but technology we can't see, like nanotechnology, which humans are taking in from a variety of sources, not least the sky through chemtrails, which appear to be normal condensation trails, exhaust from jet aeroplanes, but actually they're chemtrails and they're full of metals and chemicals and nanotechnology. And humans are absorbing the nanotechnology, which is beyond the ability of the human eye to see, hence the name. And people like Raker as well talk about nanotechnology infiltrating the brain and connecting us through the smart grid, or what, what he calls the cloud. Another name for nanotechnology is smart dust, or neural dust, or digital dust. And the definition of smart technology is that it can communicate with other smart technology, and that's how the connection will be made with the smart grid or the cloud, as Kurzweil calls it. I remember reading an article about a Berkeley University study which showed that nanotechnology can infiltrate the pathways of the brain. I talk about transhumanism in more detail in episode 8. One thing I think is also important to understand about transhumanism is connecting humans to technology run by AI, which then replaces the human mind, is only the first stage of transhumanism. It goes beyond that. The next stage is to get rid of the body and upload minds to the cloud with human minds existing only digitally. This system would be run completely by artificial intelligence. This is explored in a documentary series on the National Geographic channel called Year Million, where they talk about the metaverse 2.0 and they talk about the benefits as usual, perceived benefits rather than actual benefits because there's not planned to be any. That's not why it's being done. It's being done to create a technological vehicle for artificial intelligence to control everything, including the human mind. In the end, existing as a digital construct only, trapped forever in a digital hive mind with no means of escape, in a hive mind controlled by artificial intelligence. This is where we're going, while people argue about Trump or Clinton or feminists and social justice warriors complain about people using their own pronouns or the conservatives economic policy or the price of beer going up by 2p in the next budget or 1p or whatever it is this is where the human race is going while it's still human this is not me surmising this this is what they're saying they say you'll be able to live your ultimate life you can choose your experience that's the sales pitch but truth is it's about replacing human with artificial intelligence in every way, including the mind, which is all that will be left in the end after upload to the digital hive mind. There won't be a body, there'll just be the mind, and that will be taken over by artificial intelligence. This is where we're going while people focus on what celebrity wore what clothes to an award show, or the latest football match, or the latest episode of a game show. This is where we're going, and if we don't address it, there will be no more us. Another story about technology now. This is in the Telegraph. Children are swiping on books in an attempt to turn pages, teachers have said, as they are confusing them with mobile phones and iPads. This is what I've said before. Get children addicted to technology from the earliest possible age and then you've got the greatest chance of merging with that technology. There is a disturbing trend of children in reception and at nursery school picking up library books and trying to swipe left. Delegates at the National Union of Teachers Annual Conference in Brighton were told 
During a debate about libraries, Jennifer Banbury Light, a delegate from North Somerset, told of happy childhood memories of running into a library, snuggling in a corner with a book, cuddling up to mum, turning the pages, gazing at the pictures. She told the conference, Kindles and iPads are wonderful things, but many of my friends talked about the smell of a book, finding tickets and receipts that someone had left as a bookmark, echoes of all the people that had been there before. Miss Banbury Light went on, I've taught both at nursery and reception, and I personally still find it disturbing to see a child pick up a book and try to swipe left. She said that books are now a luxury that many struggling families cannot afford and that libraries can act as a pair of armbands. This next bit is absolutely extraordinary. But it shows how far we've come in addiction to technology. Wait for this. The conference heard that some young children struggle to understand how books work. So, when something like that can happen, does anybody really believe that what I talked about with the previous story is really impossible in terms of where transhumanism is designed to go in the end? A previous report by the National Literacy Trust advised parents to turn to iPads and Kindles to get boys interested in reading amid fears that large numbers of children are shunning books at a young age. Their research found that children aged 3 to 5 often read for longer and had a better grasp of vocabulary when accessing touchscreen technology. Tablet computers had a particular impact on groups that are traditionally most resistant to reading, particularly boys and infants from poor families, the study added. During the debate, NUT delegates raised concerns about a shocking hammering of library services in the last decade. Proposing the motion, Jonathan Redderford from North Somerset argued that the number of public libraries has fallen by almost 900 in the last 10 years, with more expected to go. The agenda is to get rid of physical books. This is why digital forms of books really exist. It's not about convenience. It's about removing physical information. So only digital information, which can be edited or deleted or simply not added in the first place. So information they don't want people to access never gets accessed. We've also got Amazon refusing to sell certain books. It's all connected. We're seeing the censorship of content on the internet at the same time. It's about deleting anything that challenges or exposes authority or the elite's agenda, which is the same thing in the end. Of course, they can't go there in one big leap, but they are taking steps towards it. And this is the thing, as I've said before. If you know the agenda, you know the outcome behind the sales pitch and the cover stories. In terms of the effect reading digital books is having on young people and adults too, for that matter. Scientist and author Susan Greenfield talks about the way people use the internet, and she says of this research. It is difficult to see how living this way on a daily basis will not result in brains that are dramatically different from previous generations. And I know that this is about libraries and books, but there's not much difference between looking at a book and looking at a website in the sense that with one you scroll down and the other one you scroll left but it's the same principle of looking at the information on a screen that's exactly the idea of what Susan Greenfield says they want brains that are dramatically different from previous generations further she says the mid 21st century mind might almost be infantilized look at social justice warriors and progressives characterized by short attention spans Sensationalism, look at Twitter, inability to empathise and a shaky sense of identity. And Greenfield adds in her book Mind Change that electronic devices all have an impact on the microcellular structure and complex biochemistry of our brains. And that in turn affects our personality, our behaviour and our characteristics. 
In short, the modern world could well be altering our human identity. Already, it's pretty clear that the screen-based two-dimensional world that so many teenagers and a growing number of adults inhabit is producing changes in behavior. Attention spans are shorter, personal communication skills are reduced, text speakers are a major part of this, and there's a marked reduction in the ability to think abstractly. There's also a great interview with a guy called Professor Phil Reed on the brilliant Richie Allen show, which I recommend, on the subject of Wi-Fi in addition to the internet, and I'll link to the interview when I upload this episode. I would disagree with Reed when he says he doesn't think the consequences of this technology are known about. They absolutely are known about, ultimately. Not necessarily at the level of the factory floor level workers of the corporations, but they are known about ultimately. But Professor Reed does make some very great points in the interview about the effects of the technology. Researchers at De Montfort University in London reached identical conclusions and discovered that the more a person uses the internet, the more likely they are to experience cognitive failures, in other words, failures of the brain. A study by neuroscientists and radiologists at universities and hospitals in China using MRI scans found that excessive internet use may cause parts of teenagers' brains to waste away. This works on the same principle of use it or lose it. The brain is a muscle, and what you don't use it for becomes weaker and weaker like any other muscle. American researcher Nicholas Carr supports Greenfield's conclusions. Carr talked about having an uncomfortable sense that someone or something has been tinkering with my brain, remapping the neural circuitry, reprogramming the memory. And he was told by his doctor, he says, that he'd almost totally lost the ability to read and absorb longish articles on the web or in print. It's interesting that a study at Emory University discovered that reading physical books or longish articles in print, especially in print, is the prevention of such rewiring of the mind. Which is why they want to get people using digital books. And this researcher, Nicholas Carr, says that like a chemical narcotic, the internet's cacophony of stimuli short circuits both conscious and unconscious thoughts, preventing our minds from thinking either deeply or creatively, which is perfect for the elite's agenda, even sympathetically. Now, this is all planned and happening by design. They want everything to be digital in the end, including human perception, human awareness, which will in the end be artificial intelligence awareness. As I said in the story I just read, the article goes on. This guy, Jonathan Redifer from North Somerset, who was talking about the number of public libraries disappearing, has said, this is a shocking, shocking hammering of vital public services for many, many people, he said. The article goes on. At least 441 community libraries have closed in the past decade, with a further 149 under threat, the conference was told. The drop in professional librarians led to a 93% increase in volunteers working in libraries, resulting in an erosion of a long-standing knowledge and skill base, which threatens the quality of the service they provide, the motion said. The NUT resolved to campaign for properly funded libraries which employ professional librarians. Kevin Courtney, General Secretary of the NUT, said libraries are an essential part of school and community life and as relevant now as they have ever been. Tragically, over the past decade, the number of school libraries staffed by qualified librarians has declined rapidly. Reading for pleasure is a skill for life and is consistently shown to be one of the most powerful springboards for children's engagement with learning, thinking and creating, which is why they want to get rid of physical books. The government needs to put libraries, books and reading for pleasure centre stage in its vision for children and young people. Well, yes, I agree, but they don't want to do that. The idea is to do the opposite of that, for the reasons I've said. 
A Department for Education spokesperson said, we want all children to have the opportunity to read widely. And earlier this year, we announced a multi-million pound fund to make sure pupils can master the basics of reading. Well, that's great, but the idea is to have only digital books with books that have content that either does not challenge authority and the elite's agenda and expose it and or books that promote what the authority wants people to believe. Anything else will not be published, it will not be added to the digital platform, the digital means to which people will read the books and therefore people will never see it or hear it. That's where books are going and that's why this whole idea of Kindles and digital books exists in the first place. Moving on to the next subject now. This is a couple of stories about the cashless society. This is in the Daily Mail. First story. Family members are being blocked from paying cash into each other's accounts and were cracked down by high street banks on criminal gangs. Family members are being blocked from paying cash into each other's accounts under a crackdown by high street banks. The new rules mean grandparents are barred from putting birthday cash into their grandchildren's accounts. Even married couples cannot top up each other's savings. Santander, Nationwide and Barclays are among those who have introduced the rules in recent weeks. They say they are clamping down on criminal gangs who launder cash through bank accounts. Customers can still pay into another person's account by checking high street branches, but critics condemn the ban as a cynical attempt to save money by forcing customers online. Nationwide customer Simon Ike fell foul of the rules when he tried to pay £20 into his wife Valerie's account at the Berkhamsted branch in Hertfordshire. The counter staff pointed Mr Ike, 62, to a notice that read, Keeping our members' money savers at the very heart of our membership, so to protect our members and their money, we're no longer accepting cash deposits from anyone who isn't the account holder. The notice suggests customers instead sign up to the Building Society's banking app for smartphones and transfer the money over the internet. See how everything's moving to being done through smart technology? This is connected to transhumanism agenda with the articles I was just reading Mr. Reich said it's as if Nationwide Building Society no longer respects or trusts marriage or any other family membership or relationship if the concern is money laundering I can understand a restriction if I was trying to pay in a large sum such as £500 but to stop me paying in £20 is ridiculous since Monday Santander customers have been barred from paying in cash unless they are named on the account Barclays has also introduced tighter controls. Previously, anyone could pay in cash to any account as long as they had the sort code and account number. But now only the bank's customers can do this, and even those who do have an account cannot pay in cash into another account without providing proof of identity or answering security questions. MoneyMail tested the new rules by trying to pay £40 into Santander and nationwide current accounts. On both occasions, we were barred from doing so. Santander staff admitted customers had been caught out by the rule changes. Last night, the ban was criticised by politicians who warned of the impact on 2.7 million people who were entirely reliant on cash. MP John Mann, who sits on the Treasury Select Committee, said this doesn't seem to be about money laundering. This seems to be a money-making opportunity for the banks who feel that the cost of handling small amounts is too great. Campaigners called on the banks to rethink. They said many elderly people would feel more comfortable with cash rather than online payments. Finance campaigner Baroness Altman said... I find this shocking. The bank should be chasing criminals who are paying in large amounts of cash, not stopping grandparents doing what they love and giving money to their grandchildren. However, banks including Lloyd's, Halifax and TSB say they do not plan to impose similar rules. The spokesman for Banking Trade Body UK Finance said banks have to tread a fine line or risk falling foul of money laundering regulations. 
A Santander Dash spokesman said it is offering guidance and support in setting up alternative payment methods. In reference to Mr. Reich's case, a nationwide spokesman said existing members are able to pay money into their account and transfer this to another. This is a straightforward process which the member used to transfer the funds we apologise for any inconvenience caused. Well, this is one step away from not allowing cash deposits from people who are the account holder. This is the cashless society and it's been long planned. This is where it was always going in the end. They want an end to physical money because if you have electronic money, credit with a one world bank dictating all global finance from a central point, which is massively part of the elite's desired structure for the world. They want this not only to be able to dictate the state of finance of individual countries, but also who has access to money or credit and who doesn't have access. And anyone challenging or exposing authority will very quickly come under the latter. This is what it's about. Money is the most fundamental means of control on the planet, apart from direct mind control and religion. And the most essential means of survival. And so if you can manipulate a situation where people's only means of accessing money is to follow orders and never challenge you, then you're in a massive position of power over those people, because if they don't do what you say, they have no means of purchase and therefore no means of securing for themselves the basics of life. This is what it's about ultimately. It's nothing to do with protecting customers' money or making payment more convenient. It's about control. And it says in the article, banks including Lloyd's, Halifax and TSB said they do not plan to impose similar rules. Well, maybe not at the moment, but the idea is that they want the cashless society everywhere. So eventually all banks will phase out cash. And this is another reason why they want the one world bank because then you've got one source dictating all global finance one point of decision making which makes it a lot easier to control and when it says here 2.7 million people entirely reliant on cash that's the idea that's massively part of creating this hunger game society but again the media reports what's happening but it doesn't tell you why he doesn't have the knowledge of the context and connections to tell the full story. Another story now that follows on from previous story. This is in the New York Times. Big Brother in India requires fingerprint scans for food, phones and finances. Seeking to build an identification system of unprecedented scope, India is scanning the fingerprints, eyes and faces of its 1.3 billion residents and connecting the data to everything from welfare benefits to mobile phones. Civil libertarians are horrified viewing the programme called Adhar as Orwell's Big Brother brought to life. To the government it's more like Big Brother, a term of endearment used by many Indians to address a stranger when asking for help. For other countries the technology could provide a model for how to track their residents. And for India's top court the ID system presents unique legal issues that will define what the constitutional right to privacy means in the digital age. To Adita Jha, Adhar was simply a hassle. The 30-year-old environmental consultant in Delhi waited in line three times to sit in front of a computer that photographed her face, captured her fingerprints and snapped images of her irises. Three times the data fell to upload. The fourth attempt finally worked and she has now been added to the 1.1 billion Indians already included in the programme. Miss Jha had little choice but to keep at it. The government has made registration mandatory for hundreds of public services and many private ones from taking school exams to opening bank accounts. You almost feel like life is going to stop without an Adhar, Miss Jha said. Technology has given governments around the world new tools to monitor their citizens. 
In China, the government is rolling out ways to use facial recognition and big data to trap people, aiming to eject itself further into everyday life. Many countries, including Britain, deploy closed-circuit cameras to monitor their populations. But India's program is in a league of its own. Both in the mass collection of biometric data and in the attempt to link it to everything, traffic tickets, bank accounts, pensions, even meals for undernourished school children. No one has approached that scale and that ambition, said Jacqueline Baba, a professor and research director of Harvard's FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, who has studied biometric ID systems around the world. It has been held, and justifiably so, as an extraordinary triumph to get everyone registered. Well, I would disagree with that. Critics fear that the government will gain unprecedented insight into the lives of all Indians. In response, Prime Ministers Narendra Modi and other champions of the programme say that Adhar is India's ticket to the future. A universal, easy-to-use ID that will reduce this country's endemic corruption and help bring even the most illiterate into the digital age. It's the equivalent of building interstate highways, said Nandan Nilakani, a technology billionaire who was tapped by the government in 2009 to build the Adhar system. If the government invested in building a digital public utility and that is made available as a platform, then you actually can create major innovations around that. The potential uses from surveillance to managing government benefit programs have drawn interest elsewhere. Sri Lanka is planning a similar system and Britain, Russia and the Philippines are studying it according to the Indian government. Why? Because it's a global agenda in the end. The elite have a global agenda and so they want to play their agenda out in every country. Adhar, which means foundation in English, was initially intended as a difficult-to-forge ID to reduce fraud and improve the delivery of government welfare programs. But Mr Modi, who has promoted Digital India vision since his party took power in 2014, has vastly expanded its ambitions. The poor must scan their fingerprints at the ration shop to get their government allocations of rice. Retirees must do the same to get their pensions. Middle school students cannot enter the water department's annual painting contest until they submit their identification. In some cities, newborns cannot leave the hospital until their parents sign them up. Even leprosy patients whose illness damages their fingers and eyes have been told they must pass fingerprint or iris scans to get their benefits. Crazy but true. The Modi government has also ordered Indians to link their IDs to their cell phone and bank accounts. States have added their own twists, like using the data to map where people live. Some employers use the ID for background checks on job applicants. Adhar has added great strength to India's development, Mr Modi said in a January speech to military cadets. Officials estimate that taxpayers have saved at least $9.4 billion from Adhar by weeding out ghosts and other improper beneficiaries of government services. Opponents have filed at least 30 cases against the programme in India's Supreme Court. They argue that Adhar violates India's constitution and in particular a unanimous court decision last year that declared for the first time that Indians had a fundamental right to privacy. Rahul Narayan, one of the lawyers challenging the system, said the government was essentially building one giant database on its citizens. There has been a sort of mission creep to it all along, he said. The court has been holding extensive hearings and is expected to make a ruling in the spring. Mission creep is interesting because this is a technique they use all the time. If you play this technique, you know where you're going from the start, but you can't go down one big leap and say you... To use the example of the alphabet, you go from A to B, then maybe to D, then maybe to F, then maybe to Y. As big a step as you can get away with each time, but not so big that the population sees the pattern, or at least too many people 
don't see the pattern. The government argues that the universal ID is vital in a country where hundreds of millions of people do not have widely accepted identification documents. The people themselves are the biggest beneficiaries, said Ajay B. Pandey, the Minnesota-trained engineer who leads the Unique Identification Authority of India, the government agency that oversees the system. This identity cannot be refused. Businesses are also using the technology to streamline transactions. Banks once sent employees to the homes of account applicants to verify their addresses. Now accounts can be opened online and finished with a fingerprint scan at a branch or other authorised outlet. Reliance Geo, a telecom provider, relies on an ad hoc fingerprint scan, oh, well, his name's appropriate then, to conduct the government-mandated ID check for purchases of cell phone SIM cards. That allows clerks to activate service immediately instead of forcing buyers to wait a day or two. But the Adhar system has also raised practical and legal issues. Although the system's core fingerprint, iris and face database appears to have remained secure, at least 210 government websites have leaked other personal data, such as name, birth date, address, parents' names, bank account number and Adhar number for millions of Indians. Some of that data is still available with a simple Google search. As Adhar has become mandatory for government benefits, Parts of rural India have struggled with the internet connections necessary to make Adhar work. After a lifetime of manual labour, many Indians also have no readable prints, making authentication difficult. One recent study found that 20% of the households in Jharkhand state had failed to get their food rations under Adhar-based verification, five times the failure rate of ration cards. This is the population that is being passed off as ghosts and bogus by the government, said Ritika Kera, an associate professor of economics at the Indian Institute of Technology, Delhi, who co-wrote the study. Seeing these problems, some local governments have scaled back the use of Adhar for public benefits. In February, the government for the Delhi region announced that it would stop using Adhar to deliver food benefits. Dr Pandey said that some problems were inevitable, but that his agency was trying to fix them. The government is patching security holes and recently added face recognition as an alternative to fingerprint or iris scans to make it easier to verify identities. Fears that the Indian government could use Adhar to turn the country into a surveillance state, he said, are overblown. There is no central authority that has all the information, he said. Before Adhar, he said, hundreds of millions of Indians could not easily prove who they were. If you were not able to prove your identity, you are disenfranchised, he said. You have no existence. Yes, it's all well as 1984, and I've gone into the 1984 world being built all around us in episode 4 in more detail. But ID goes beyond just Big Brother. ID is about more than just profiling. ID cards, for example, are a stepping stone to the microchip containing all your information. The microchips are nothing compared to nanotechnology, which is the transhumanism agenda again. Also, I know it's not mentioned here, but it's worth mentioning while we're talking about transhumanism and Big Brother, people will see DNA databases as just about keeping track of people, but DNA has a frequency, and if you can target people at their own DNA frequency, then you've got them, and this is the real reason for DNA databases. Also, DNA testing websites like 23andMe and Ancestry DNA have some interesting people involved with them and connected to them. Ancestry DNA is a subsidiary of Ancestry.com, which is based in Utah, which is also where the National Security Agency's Global Data Center is. 23andMe, a personal genomics and biotechnology company, is based in Silicon Valley, of all places, where you'll find Google and where, to a very large extent, the transhumanism agenda is being driven from. 
and 23andMe was co-founded by Anne Wojcicki, former wife of Sergey Brin, who was the co-founder of Google. Wojcicki's sister is the CEO of YouTube, owned by Google, which invested nearly £4 million in 23andMe. Apple chairman Arthur D. Levinson also heads biotechnology company Calico. These are the connections. Now, this doesn't mean to say that these DNA companies are selling on the samples to other organizations that people send to them. But questions surely have to be asked with these kind of people involved and a connection to transhumanist advancing corporations. They're now creating synthetic DNA called GNA or PNA. And people like Ray Kurzweil of Google talk about synthetic blood being created. Synthetic DNA is very significant because DNA is proteins and amino acids, yes, but it's also a receiver and transmitter of information. It's an antenna on one level. And the idea behind synthetic DNA is to create a DNA to ensure humans never again receive information from beyond the bounds of the transhumanism cloud. So locking in human awareness to within the bounds of the cloud and never again beyond it, which is the idea behind the cloud. They want a synthetic human form, a non-human form in their non-humanism agenda, a non-human form connected to the cloud and eventually the human mind uploaded as a digital entity with no means of escape, trapped forever and assimilated into artificial intelligence. So you can look at ID on one level and see it as Big Brother in 1984 and just profiling, but there's a bigger picture. And that's what pay-per-view is all about, providing the context and connections to see the bigger picture. So I hope you find it informative again, and I look forward to doing it next week and continuing to provide the context and connections to explain the world as it really is. So until then, goodbye. <laughs>